Welcome to Credo's Biblical Theology Podcast, where biblical theology is placed in conversation with the great tradition for the benefit of theologians, preachers, and, and the church. Uh, we're intentionally trying to be cross-disciplinarian uh, for the benefit of pulpit, lectern, um, anyone who's seeking to read the scriptures theologically. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Carter. He serves as the research professor of theology at Tyndale University in Toronto and theologian in residence at Westney Heights Baptist Church in, in Ajax. Ontario. Dr. Carter, how are you, sir? I am fine. Nice to nice to talk to you, Sam. Yeah, well, thank you. What we're going to be discussing today is the history of the field, and I'll put it in scare quotes, the history of the field of biblical theology or uh, kind of seeking to situate biblical theology among the disciplines, whether it should be named a discipline, these sorts of things. And so Dr. Carter is going to help us think through, um, for instance, Johann Gabler and, and Gerhardus Voss, Childs, um, and then we're going to even do some fact and fiction at the end where we're looking at some um quotes from Augustine, from Irenaeus, uh, also from Calvin, and just let him riff off those a little bit and say, hey, what what elements of biblical theology do you find here? Um, would you want to call it something else? Is this canonical exegesis, these sorts of things? So we'll do that at the end. But first, we're going to just look at these different figures and try to tell the story at a very high level of um, the, the discipline, so to speak, of biblical theology. But first, Dr. Carter, would you because this could get appropriately, Dr. Carter, a little bit spicy here. But your definition, your operative definition of how you see biblical theology, just so the crowd can situate um, what you think about it, a uh, definition of sorts, and then we'll start talking about the figures and they can move from there. Uh, yeah, sure. So what is biblical theology? Um, we're going to look at the history in a minute. And historically, the discipline of biblical theology, you know, Voss occupied the first chair in it at uh, Princeton, the turn of the 20th century. But the discipline is relatively modern as a, a name discipline called biblical theology. And I don't really think biblical theology is a discipline separate unto itself. Um, I think it's better to to see what is done in biblical theology as part of exegesis. So for me, dogmatic theology is is basically exegesis plus uh, historical theology, history of interpretation plus metaphysics. So I don't. So, so the biblical theology. I acknowledge that what people generally do today when you go to the bookstore and pick up a book in biblical theology, most of them are are very interesting and helpful and good books, but they are not. Um, I, I just kind of resist the idea that 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 there's any sense in which a biblical theology is finished. Um, so when you when you when you think about doctoral theses, and you often have monographs in specific narrow areas. Um, a book of biblical theology could be one of those. And generally speaking, these highly specialized monographs uh, are research into a, a, a problem or a, or a period or a figure. And they are very specialized and they're not really meant to come to any great general conclusions. They're meant to contribute as little building blocks towards something else, toward a, a more systematic understanding of a problem or an issue or a doctrine. And I think biblical theology kind of fits into that category. There can be books written on biblical theology, but biblical theology for my money is not really something separate from the process of doing exegesis. It's not a rival or a uh, something you could do instead of systematic theology or, ex or dogmatic theology. It's not really something that we should kind of aspire to do as a finished discipline. Um, I think it needs to be understood as part of the exegetical process by which we try to um, use scripture in developing doctrine. That's great. Well, thank you. And, and I know as a listener, what I really appreciate and envisioned about having Dr. Carter on here is I know he has a very nuanced view of even how he would define biblical theology as, as he just exemplified. And what I would just encourage uh, everyone to do is just consider, you know, and just think you may have quibbles with some of the things he said, but I, I think there's a challenge there that's worth engaging with. Um, and then also there's going to be a number of historical pieces that come here um, that, that he he's well situated to, to understand the discipline. So why don't we just launch off into that, um, Dr. Carter? 
what talk to us about Johann Gabler, um, Altdorf, these sorts of things, his original lecture that he uh, delivered that, that is helpful to sort of understand, at least um, in the dubious sense, the beginnings of biblical theology and, and what, what he was doing there. Well, so so J.P. Gabler is um, a representative of German Enlightenment uh, higher critical thought, and he um, he's 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 uh, he's functioning. He's living at a time when the um, when the exegesis of Scripture, the interpretation of the Bible, was moving. Uh, from being a strictly ecclesial thing to becoming an academic thing from the church to the university. And there was a bit of struggle uh, over who has the right to say what is the right interpretation of scripture. Can only the church do that? Or can the secular research university uh, do that? And so he, he stresses the difference between what it meant in its original situation and what it means now. And his, um, Gabler, Gabler is really saying that what you need to do is study the Bible in its historical context and forget dogmatic theology, forget the doctrine of original sin, forget the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement, forget the Chalcedonian understanding of Christology, put all that out of your mind and just take the text and study the text in its historical context to understand what the original author meant to say to the original audience in the original situation. And so this is what he called biblical theology. Now, the the odd thing is that in 1790 or so, um, okay, biblical theology was what the liberals were doing, and today biblical theology is generally understood as what the conservatives are doing. Um, and... And basically what Gabler, though, was, trying, was, was arguing for was an understanding of the text that does not take the creed into account. He, he's understanding, he, he's saying that, I mean, the, the implication of what he's saying, he doesn't come right out and say it, but the implication of what he's saying is that the church might actually um, be basing its doctrines on wrong interpretations, which, of course, is is hugely controversial and um and 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 it's something that obviously you know cannot be said from within the church um so he's saying it kind of as a scholar uh outside of the church and he's he's but but this this begins this is the beginning this is the headwaters of the whole historical critical method that that flourishes in the 19th century um but it's all rooted in the idea that we read the Bible as a historical document, looking at the human author. There's no supernatural uh, presupposition, like no no metaphysical assumption that the supernatural is real. There's no uh, there's no sense of the divine author being the true author of Scripture. That's more of a um, the human author is the focus. The human author is the meaning. And there's no real sense of, of the Bible necessarily being a unity because um, it's got many different authors and each human author is going to have a different perspective and different set of assumptions and different beliefs. And so what each author says is not going to necessarily line up with what other, other authors say. And all of this, I think, is, is kind of implicitly uh, there in, in Gabler and then it gets worked out and spun out over the next hundred years. That's great. So just to ground everyone, what we're talking about is is Johann Gabler, uh, 1789. He delivers an address called On the Proper Distinction Between Biblical and Dogmatic Theology and the Specific Objectives of Each um, in Altdorf there. And he drives this wedge between religion, theology and, and, and the way he discusses it. But what he's ultimately doing is Dr. Carter has said is, is he's severing, he's divorcing the uh, merely human, the super to, from the supernatural. So he, he's just ripping the divine out and the headwaters. I, I love the way you characterize that Dr. Carter, because from there you can see, I mean, sometimes even in evangelicalism, this sense of 
historical um, and even psychological is the primary thing we're, we're after here. And we're, and we're just bracketing out that uh, we are confessing this is an inerrant text, an inspired text, an inspired and inerrant text from who? From God. This is naturally rather supernatural text. That is that is what we're dealing with. And so Gabler is is this sort of dubious beginnings. But and, and we have to move quickly here. Right. But we, there's a big change by the time you get to a figure like um, Voss, right? Uh, so why don't you give us a little bit there? What, what is what is happening with Gerhardus Voss? Uh, how is he different? What, how has he got a different objective um, in mind when he's working? Yes. Yeah, so during the Enlightenment period, there was there were two streams of theology in conflict from the say around the early 1600s up until uh, Gabler. Uh, for the, the period of 1600 to the 1650 to 1800 is rough working dates of the, the you know, you go from the 1648 piece of Westphalia to the death of Kant in 1804. That's the Enlightenment period. And during this Enlightenment period, you have a struggle going on between, on the one side, scholastic Protestant theology. And this is post-Reformation scholasticism. There's a Lutheran scholasticism. And there's a a, uh, a reform scholasticism. And this is um, on the continent of Europe. These the universities are full of people who are in this Protestant scholastic um, uh, mindset. And this is uh, broadly speaking, Aristotelian. It's uh, very much in continuity with, with uh, the medieval period. And it's, um, and it's, it's dogmatic theology being done in the sense of this is where you get the great reformed uh, confessions uh, coming out of this period. Um, you know, Augsburg, 39 Articles, Westminster, et cetera. This, this, this theology that is produced here is produced from within a pre-modern metaphysical context. And then on the other side of the Enlightenment, you have Spinoza and Hobbes and and um, Newton, um, sorry, um, Descartes, and you have the, the 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 rationalist approach that that kind of is say it, it is this is effectively rejecting the, um, the the classical realist metaphysics that are in continuity with the. Augustinian Thomist tradition, and which are found in Protestant scholasticism, rejecting that and embracing the new mechanical philosophy of Descartes, and 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 really, um, while it's it's embracing nominalism if, uh, as as opposed to realism, so it's denying uh, universals, it's denying a participatory ontology whereby. Uh, we, all beings, all individually existing things participate in being, big B being, which is God himself. There's no participatory ontology anymore. Um, there's mechanism, there's um, materialism is, is big. You know, Spinoza is basically a naturalist. And so you've got these enlightenment ideas which are rejecting classical metaphysics. And you've got Protestant scholasticism and, they're, and they are in conflict. So when you come into the 19th century, the way I read the history is that the history of the interpretation of the Bible is increasingly done from within an Enlightenment con context as opposed to being done from within a, a Christian um, scholastic context. And what that means is, you know, Julius Wellhausen and uh, JDEP and, and, the, um, and, and all of that all of the questioning of, of dates and authorship and so on that happens during the 19th century, well, that's all because of um, um, anti-supernaturalist um, presuppositions being applied to the study of the biblical documents and and looking at them from within a a, a historicist uh, context. The historicist here being that that basically um, natural forces and and things in the world. Um, account for everything that happens, that you can understand everything that happens. And, and you can take this in a, uh, in a very much a fatalistic kind of deterministic direction, or you can uh, take it in a different direction and have some, some, some room for free will. But, but in any case, everything that happens has a natural explanation. And within that enlightenment approach, 
biblical studies really gets reshaped. Now, when you come to Voss, um, I would suggest that Voss is somebody who, although he is aware of Enlightenment thought, and although he is um, living at a time when the fruits of modern historical criticism have become clear and, and have been worked out in quite, quite a lot of detail, Although he's living at that time and understands these things, he rejects modernity and he stands within classical realist metaphysics of Protestant scholasticism. So he is basically coming at this from within a Protestant scholastic perspective. And that's why he is very different from Gabler and very different from the whole historical critical method as it develops through the 19th century. So how is he different? Well, first of all, he is concerned about uh, treating the Bible as an inspired text. So he, for him, inspiration means that God speaks through the text, which is a traditional assumption all through the church up until the enlightenment, that God is speaking in the text. It's not just human speaking in the text, it's God speaking in the text. And, and secondly, there's, there's, there's an openness to the supernatural. So there's an openness to miracles and virgin birth and resurrection, all these things that are being denied by liberal Protestantism um, Voss has no problems with them because they fit within his his metaphysical context. He, he he's he's open to the supernatural, and then um, as well, Voss is self consciously a creedal, um, a confessional theologian. He, he he operates under under the authority of of the Reformed confessions, and he is um, happy to do that. Now, when you read his biblical theology, you don't notice. Um, him kind of referring to the creeds and say, well, this verse means this because Westminster Confession of Faith says it does. Uh, he doesn't do it in that kind of a clumsy way, but, you know, he's, he's not like that. But he, but I would argue that he is operating within a confessional perspective. And here's how you can tell. When he, um, when he, when you read through his biblical theology, the whole thing coheres together, that the message that he sees the Bible teaching from Genesis to Revelation is one big coherent message. Now, in an Enlightenment framework, you know, there's no way that that can happen. Like, it can't be. It, it just can't be one big coherent message. That's just impossible. If you've got 40 different authors living in cross, you know, a thousand years, I mean, it's impossible that that it would that there wouldn't be contradictions. But yet, um, for for Voss, the canonical story, the canonical message is one coherent uh, theological message. And how can that be? Well, I think it's because for Voss, the canon is really his criteria for exegesis. When he interprets a verse, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, he isn't finished interpreting it until it's in its complete canonical context. I would suggest to you that once you make that move, once you decide that you're going to do your exegesis in a canonical context so that the verse, you aren't finished determining what the verse means until you have placed that verse in its context from Genesis to Revelation and related it to all the other verses that have to do with that topic in such a way that they all cohere together. Once you've done that, you have done basically the same thing that church theologians were doing before Gabler by following the, the creeds and confessions. You are, because that's what the creeds and confessions are. They're a distillation of the exegesis when it's done in its complete canonical context. That's exactly what the creeds are. And so even though God, um, Voss is, is advocating for, you know, he, he, for this discipline called biblical theology, um, nevertheless, I think in order to do what he does, there has to be this assumption that the canon is a unified divine, has a unified voice, which is determined by the divine authorial intent. And, and really from there to saying, and the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, as it would be for Voss, is the, um, the, 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 the best distillation of Christian doctrine based on scripture. The step from what Voss is doing to that is a tiny little step. It, it, it's, it's very, very tiny. 
Whereas between Gabler's approach and saying the Westminster Confession of Faith represents the, the best distillation of Christian doctrine, uh, there's a mighty ocean in between there. There's no way to get from one to the other. But for Voss, it's a very small step because of these things I just said, inspiration, supernatural, and canonical context. That's great. Similarly, just grounding uh, Gerhardus Voss here, his years are 1862 to 1949, popularly known as just the father of Reformed biblical theology. And what Dr. Carter is talking about here is kind of a back and forth with he had an inaugural address at, at Princeton called the idea of biblical theology as a science and as a theological discipline, which was a very kind of watershed uh, um, just address. But then his magnum opus, arguably, uh, would have been his biblical theology. It's certainly his most popular known thing, and it's sort of impossible to imagine evangelical uh, biblical theology minus that. And and so what's amazing about Voss, and, and you've pointed at it, uh, Dr. Carter, is just that he also has a five-volume dogmatics. Um, so so brilliant was he, uh, so to speak. And so, um, yeah, it really raised the mystique of biblical scholarship, uh, or rather biblical theology, and, and represents sort of the dying embers of, of old Princeton in many ways. Right, and just uh, just one more point on Voss. I just want to underline what you said about the, the five-volume dogmatics. And this was not known until just recently, like because it wasn't translated into English until just recently. So people didn't really realize that in his younger or early career that Voss actually lectured in dogmatics. And, and um, at his time and place, uh, for one person to lecture on both uh, biblical and doctrinal topics was not as um, unusual as it is today. And I think it was a healthier time when people could do that. But the point is that, um, that just to underline what you're saying, which confirms what I was saying, that, that when you read his, his dogmatics and his biblical theology, you can see how there's, there's how you can easily move from one to the other and back again without any jarring dissonance. Um, and, uh, and, and one thing that, you know, I would encourage your listeners to think about is when they read books that, um, they, they sh- as a pastor should read dogmatic books and, and also read biblical studies. Do you, I mean, you're going to, and I'm assuming you're going to read the biblical study stuff because you're preparing sermons and you, you, you know, you're going to preach on Exodus next year. And so maybe read a, a book about Exodus. Well, when but you should also be reading dogmatics. And one of the things you should look for is when you find a book where it feels really jarring to go from this to dogmatics, um, you know, a lot should go off in your mind and you should ask yourself why that is and and uh and just kind of think about that because because for somebody like Boss, going from one to the other was not that difficult. And if it is that difficult in, in the case of the books you're reading, then you might want to one you might want to consider reading other books. Like like you might want to just consider that a problem to be dealt with or addressed in some way, and rather than just assuming that biblical studies and dogmatics are not supposed to have anything to do with each other. Well, let's uh, shift gears hard again um, and look at Brevard Childs. Um, so talk to us a little bit about him. Um, we're using huge swaths of time here and, and jumping, uh, but but talk to us a little bit about Brevard Childs. Where, where was he at? Where would you situate him? Well, Brevard Childs came out of a conservative Presbyterian background, and he uh, he went to university. He, he he ended up studying in Europe and um, studied with some of the leading. Uh, I think he studied with Von Rad and uh, Karl Barth and people like that. And he, he was a brilliant scholar. Uh, he he left the, his conservative background and functioned within a mainline Presbyterian background. And he was professor at Yale, um, but he never really completely lost his um, his love of the scriptures and his his understanding of the fact that the scriptures um, need to be preached like there are some biblical scholars in the in the 20th century that you know um, what they do has nothing to do with preaching whatsoever and you couldn't even imagine it being relevant or helpful for preaching Childs never really lost the, the sense of that the other thing I would say about Childs that is positive is that he was a tremendous historian. And I think one of the, you know, 
when I was in seminary many, many years ago, like decades ago, um, his Exodus commentary was fairly new at that time. And of all the books, all the commentaries that I ever used in seminary in my courses, um, I was most excited by that commentary because mm. unlike any of the others, it had this history of interpretation section that was so fascinating. Because to me as a, as a seminary student, the idea of, well, how did Calvin interpret that verse was very really interesting. How did Irenaeus interpret it? How did Augustine interpret it? Like this was fascinating to me. I, I thought this was um, this was something that every commentary should be talking about. And I wondered why. Uh, you know, the, I, I remember one commentary on Hebrews that I used, and it, it had um, a history of interpretation section uh, at the beginning, a little section at the beginning of the commentary, and uh, it started in 1870. Uh, I was just, you know, just what? face palm, you know, like, goodness, things happened before 1870, you know, but they, they were reading the Bible back then, don't you know? Like, like so all of our doctrines practically were finalized long before that, so... How did the people that finalized our Christology and our doctrine of the Trinity and our doctrine of atonement, how did they use the Bible? Well, I mean, this modern commentary wasn't interested in those kind of questions. It just started with 1870 and picked up from there. So Childs was great as a historian, and he did seriously see Scripture as, like he was interested in how Scripture functions in the church, how it's preached, how it's taught, how it's understood ecclesially and not just as an academic subject. Now, Childs um, is is the way I would compare him to. You, you could almost you could almost see Gabler as one extreme, Voss as the other extreme. Gabler being uh, directing us toward human authorial intent only, and Voss saying, "Well, human authorial intent has some value, but really, we're not finished exegeting until we know the divine authorial intent." So he's focused more on that. Childs is. Is, is attempting to bring those two together. He is, he's attempting to to understand the text using the historical critical method, uh, very much a modern method, very much uh, functioning, you know, in the, the mainstream of Enlightenment-inspired higher critical study of the Bible. And the difference between Childs, though, and other historical critics is that Childs is not is not satisfied with just doing the finding the human authorial intention for each verse, but he wants to think about the theological meaning of the text as well. So he, but, but what he doesn't want to do, what he never does is to confuse the two. He doesn't, he doesn't conflate the two. He wants to, to, so he, he wants to do the human authorial intent first and then do the theological meaning second and keep them separate. I remember when his Isaiah commentary was finally published, and uh, I, as a pastor, I, I, I ordered it right or pre-ordered it and bought it and read it, and expecting, I mean, man, this is Isaiah. Like if, I, if Exodus was exciting, this is going to be twice as exciting. And I was so disappointed because the commentary didn't give me anything to preach. It was all historical critical. Hmm. And, I, and I, where was the history of interpretation? Well, it turns out that um, for one reason or another, and and I'm not sure, I'm not privy to the inside story, but somebody probably is. But I, what I'm led to understand is that well, there's kind of two explanations. When he submitted the manuscript for the Isaiah commentary, either the length was too long, and and they, they that was the reason why they cut out the historical, the history of interpretation part. Or the editors didn't think that the history of interpretation part fit well within the Old Testament library um, uh, approach. I tend to think it was the former because the Exodus commentary included the history of interpretation, and it was uh, it was in the Old Testament library, and you know it was very successful. Everybody thought of it as a major commentary on Exodus. So I can't imagine that they just said, "Well, we don't want it." Oh, but then later, when the struggle to understand Isaiah as Christian scripture was published, turns out that that's the whole book on its own of 300 pages. So it was a pretty big section. Um, the history of interpretation was a pretty big section uh, that he cut out of the commentary. But uh, I still think it's a shame that the two 
uh, things were not published together. The commentary on Isaiah and the history of interpretation of Isaiah, I think they should have been in one book. But the fact that they're in two books is almost symbolic hmm. of Charles' whole approach of what's wrong with it. But they could be put into two books um, is to me the problem. Because, because when I read the struggle to understand Isaiah, there are a few books that I've ever read in my life that were more exciting to me. Mm. Like, like that was, that was just exhilarating to read that. Um, Childs, Childs was an incredible scholar. Like when you stop and think of it, it's no wonder that there aren't more books like this because man, he's got command of about four or five different languages that he needs. He is looking into the specialized literature in periods ranging from the early Greek, um, Greek and Roman period, like second, third, fourth century, the patristic period, and then the medieval period, and then the reform, reformation and post-reformation period, and then the modern period. And he's working in German and French and English and Latin and Greek and Hebrew and classical Greek and biblical Greek. Um, and he's, and he's, and he's really penetrating to understand all of these, all of these historical figures. Not just giving a superficial, you know, encyclopedia-style summary of them, but he's he's really grappling with with how they use certain terms and how certain terms are used by other writers and and where the overlap is and where the distinctions are. Like it's a very, it's a real, it's a really. I just think an outstanding work of scholarship. But the fact is that whether he was forced to or whether he did it by choice or whether he acquiesced, he published them as two books. And I think that just summarizes what's wrong with Child's approach because you shouldn't be able to finish saying in your commentary what the text means until you've grappled with the history of interpretation, until you've grappled with um, how that text fits into the whole canonical context. And so uh, but Charles was able to do that because his Isaiah commentary is very much a standard entry in the genre of historical critical commentaries on the Old Testament. It's really not that different. Now, there are some attempts in that commentary to give a theological meaning, but I just don't think they, they finally succeed. So my, I'm rambling around here a long ways, but my, my basic point of critique of Childs in the midst of a lot of appreciation, but my basic point of critique is that he does not allow the canonical and confessional uh, interpretation of a text to enter into dialogue and even be authoritative for the the real meaning of the text. He, I think he still wants to distinguish here's the, the human authorial intention meaning of the text. And then anything we do beyond that is something other than saying what the text means. But it's almost, at times you almost get the feeling that there's two meanings of certain texts. Mm. And I get very uncomfortable at this point. And it's like, well, the text means this, really. But then we can also say it means this over here. And it, it, I just think that you need to bring those together. Right. Because I, I, I think that you don't know what the text means until you've done the, the work of setting it in its canonical context and considered the history of interpretation and thought about it in terms of, of the doctrinal, um, the overall doctrinal witness of, of the church, the overall credo confessional understanding, and thought about it metaphysically and considered the impact that moving from a pre-modern metaphysics to a modern metaphysics would have on your interpretation. Until you've done all that, I just don't think you can sign your name and say that's what it means. And yeah. um, any any system that that says you can, I think is um, is not good enough. And so Childs, you know, to me is a um, um, he, he's a he's a tremendous a tremendous scholar, and he made a tremendous effort. In some ways, he reminds me of Karl Barth uh, in in that in that both of them tried to revise 
Christian orthodoxy to make it cohere and harmonize somehow with modern metaphysics. And they both made a noble effort and they both endeavored to keep Christianity from changing any more than it was absolutely minimally necessary. They wanted to keep as much orthodoxy as possible. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I just don't think it's possible to reconcile modernity, modern metaphysics with with Christ, Orthodox Christianity. I just don't yeah. think it's go- ever going to work. And so therefore, uh, all attempts to do it must inevitably fail, no matter how talented and how scholarly and how intelligent and, and how great the, the, the thinker is. It's not the, it's not child's and bark that are the problem. It's the project that is the problem. Right. That's helpful. Well, yeah. So starting with Gabler, moving on to Voss Childs, we were seeing kind of the dubious origins and even elements of that uh, still showing up in what we broadly speaking call, you know, biblical theology. And so, uh, yeah, I, I often will convey to my students that Childs is a he's a broker type figure, like he's trying to hold on to worlds that that, that are ultimately not manageable together. Well, let's. So, yeah, I. I want to point us also. So when I'm, when I'm thinking about and, and hopefully even listeners, what I typically mean by biblical theology and what this is kind of operating on this podcast and what Dr. Carter is helping us think about this, this morning is, uh, more of a spirit than a discipline, an effort, a hope, a canonical, uh, horizon to understand a text in, whether that's individually or trying to understand, put pieces together, these sorts of things. So I would just direct the, the listener to maybe Acts 7 or Psalm 78 as examples of the spirit of biblical theology, right? And just though it, it in a sense, it did not start uh, with Gabler um, because I'm, you know, I, I would hope you in many ways as a listener would, would, would reject what he's doing. But at the same time, an older thing that, that I would want to uh, champion would be seen in places in scripture. And, and this next little section, what I'm going to do is hopefully have a little bit of fun uh, with Dr. Carter. And I'm just going to read him. He doesn't know what what uh, these um, quotes are, but he does know the authors. I'm going to read him a quote from someone and just say, hey, fact or fiction, this is biblical theology. Yes, no, how so, not these sorts of things. And so um, that that's the plan here. So, Dr. Carter, first up, we're going to have a sort of a short one from Irenaeus, and I'll just read the quote to you and you just you riff on it for a second. OK, one God almighty creator of heaven and earth who fashioned the human race, brought about the deluge, called Abraham, brought the people out of the land of Egypt, spoke with Moses, who gave the law, sent the prophets and prepared fire for the devil and his angels. What do you think about it? Well, it seems like a um like an attempt to summarize the canon mm. and to uh, to indicate things like directionality and things like um, what is central as opposed to what is peripheral. And uh, any short summary like that is going to uh, obviously leave out a lot of things in terms of the canon. So he doesn't mention Proverbs and he doesn't mention the Song of Songs and so on. But it's, it is getting at the... I think what it is, it's an, it's an attempt to think about how the Bible it's together as a meta as a meta narrative. How does it do that? And I, and I think I think that's a very important uh, aspect of doing exegesis to think about that. And you know, I, I've been in situations where we've we've given students the assignment of summarizing a uh, sometimes a biblical book and sometimes a the whole Bible in, in formulating their own statement like that. And I think it's a great useful exercise uh, for people to go through because it helps them to, to sort of um, to see uh, where the storyline of the Bible is going and how, how they should think about it as a whole. And I think the value of it is when you go to do an individual text, that, you know, you come up with an interpretation of, of an individual text and you ask how it compares to that overall storyline and and you find there's a conflict. Well, see, right there, you have a signal. Um, we need to do some more thinking here. Yeah. We, we've got a problem. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's the usefulness of it. 
Okay, helpful. Okay, so um, I'm, I've got to, I'm bouncing around here. I'm trying to decide on the fly which one to go with. I, I think we'll go with Augustine here, and so this one's just a little bit longer. Um, and and for my for my money, it's a little different. So I just want to see what you what you think about it and how he manages this. So um, it's out of uh, on the Trinity. Augustine's here. So he says, "We call the Son Rock, for it is written, and that Rock was Christ." Can we so call the spirit a dove or fire? For that rock was a thing already created, and after the mode of its action was called by the name of Christ, whom it signified. Like the stone placed under Jacob's, um, and also anointed, which he took in order to signify the Lord, or as Isaac was Christ when he carried the wood for the sacrifice of himself. A particular significant, significative action was added to those already existing things. They did not, as that dove or and fire, suddenly come into being in order to simply so to signify. The dove and the fire indeed seemed to, to me more like that flame which appeared to Moses in the bush, or that pillar which the people followed in the wilderness, or the thunder and lightnings which came when the law was given in the mount for the corporeal form of these things came into being for the very purpose that it might signify something and then pass away. So I recognize that's a long quote, but maybe your brain, your brain, you know, grabbed onto a couple things. What do you think? Is this biblical theology? What is this? What's it, what does it ring for you? This is exegesis in the light of a metaphysics and the metaphysics that is uh, talking about here is um, this is a kind of a breathtaking thing that he's doing. So let me just spell out what I think he's doing there. He is saying that things like doves and rocks come into being. God created them in the first place with the intention that, that these symbols or names, rock, dove, plane, would signify something that is corporeal. However, these things also signify spiritual realities like Christ and the Holy Spirit, in addition to signifying the material things that they um, usually are taken to signify. So, so I think what's going on here with Augustine is something that, look, if you're a modern person, you, you really need to sit down for this because this is completely foreign to the way we think today. In, in Augustine's mind, you, you can call him crazy, and he is crazy from a modern perspective, but he's thinking from within a completely different metaphysical frame. In his mind, a rock is not just a rock. A rock is a thing that God created and gave a name to, namely the name rock. And part of the purpose for which rock was created was to be a symbol of Christ when he became incarnate as a reference to, to as, a, as a symbol of what he is. So the rock is to help us understand what Christ is. Now, you might say, well, I, I think rocks are just rocks. Like, you know, things are just things and we give them names, but they're just arbitrary names and they don't, the names could be, you know, they're just labels we could interchange and switch around if we want to. But, but what Augustine is saying is that there's something about a rock that is created such a way that it means something that is conveyed in this name, and the meaning applies to Christ as much as it does to a piece of granite. And it was intention, it was intended by God that the rock would be there so that we could have some partial grasp of the meaning of what Christ is. Well, that's just mind-blowing when you think about it, because that means that everything in creation is meaningful. That creation has a meaning built into it by God that is there before you discern it, and it's still there even if you ignore it, or even if you misunderstand it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And like when you, when you start thinking that way, it just changes your whole perspective on reality, rather than uh, reality being, you know, fluid and, and, and liquid in postmodernity, where basically the mind creates the reality or partially creates the reality. From Augustine's perspective, the mind is 
on a journey toward grasping to ever greater degree the nature of the reality of the things in the world. But that reality that they are is, is, is what they are apart from our minds. It's there, it's objective, it's real, and our minds can approximate it and get closer to it and maybe even grasp it in some cases. But whether we do or not doesn't change the fact that it is what it is. And we've lost that sense in, mo- in the modern world that there is a, a reality that is the way it is and, and nothing that, that we do in terms of discerning or perceiving or, or recognizing or acknowledging can change. Like we, we really have missed that. And there's a sense in which, from Augustine's perspective, everything fits together. Um, Tom Howard has a, uh, um, a book in which he's comparing the Enlightenment to the medieval worldview. And he says that uh, there's a line in there, says, um, and everything means something and it all rushes up to heaven. Mm. Uh, points up to heaven eventually. Uh, that's the kind of, uh, that, that, that Augustine quote reminds me of that line. That's great. Okay, well, let's, uh, this is another kind of long one. It's Calvin from the Institutes and the Beverage um, uh, Edition. So a little bit long, but and, and it takes us in a little different direction, but I just want to see what you say about this one. So he says, I confess, however, that in elegance and beauty, no splendor, the style of some of the prophets is not surpassed by the eloquence of hidden writers. By examples of this description, the Holy Spirit was pleased to show that it was not from one of eloquence. He is, he in other instances used a rude and homely style, but whether you read David, Isaiah, and others of the same class whose discourse flows sweet and pleasant, or Amos the herdsman, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, whose rougher idiom savors of rusticity, that majesty of the spirit to which I adverted appears conspicuous and all. But in regard to the holy scriptures, however petulant men may attempt to carpet them, They are replete with sentiments, which it is clear that men could never have conceived. Let each of the prophets be examined, and not one will be found who does not rise for for higher than human reach. Those who feel their works insipid must be absolutely devoid of taste. But Moses does not introduce a new deity. He only set forth that doctrine concerning the eternal God, which the Israelites have received by tradition from their fathers, by whom it had been transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand during a long series of ages. For what else does he do than uh, lead them back to the covenant which had been made from Abraham? So I've pulled a couple different places there just as examples. But yeah, some thoughts on that. Like what, what you, what you think he's doing by combining even multiple places in the scripture and um, even talking about his metaphysic a little bit, those sorts of things. Yeah, well, this is where uh, the distinction between what the text says and what it means can be uh, employed usefully. Calvin is saying that certain texts uh, have a certain style and flow to them that makes them feel that makes them seem to be um, beautiful and and eloquent and then there are other texts that are that are rougher and uh, not not as precise and clear and eloquent but more more um, just kind of fumbling along towards saying something and the um, um, so if I take what Calvin is meaning uh, correctly, I think he's saying that that when we read the Bible, we and he obviously does pay attention to the the um, the, the the form in which we see it. We, we 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 take note of the vocabulary that's used. We take note of the imagery that's used. We we take note of the the uh, the quality of the prose and the quality of the poetry, and we and we. We even compare one to the other, and this is greater than that in, in terms of form. But, but Calvin is is always talking about this Holy Spirit guy. Like mm-hmm. he, he keeps coming back to this Holy Spirit. Um, you know, he, he could be talking about Paul one minute, but then then he'll turn around and say, you know, he's talking about a Pauline text, and he goes on and on for page and ages. And so I think, and so then he'll say, and the Holy Spirit means to say through this. It's almost like he's thinking about it as as the divine author speaking through the human author. And he distinguishes the, the, 
eccentricities or the idiosyncrasies of the human author from what the Holy Spirit is trying to say. And so he, I think, I think this is what makes Calvin such a great ex- expositor is that he, he is, um, he, he's, he's attentive to the text and because he is attentive to the text, because he's a, a trained humanist scholar who is, um, excellent in languages and, and very attentive to, to things like, um, uh, the style and the and the uh, type of literature being written and the use of metaphor and the use of imagery and so on. He's because he's he's a good reader of the of the text. Um, he notices the differences between the uh, the biblical authors and he. So he you can't accuse him of not paying attention to the human authorial intention or what what is being said humanly speaking. But he never loses sight of the fact that the human author and his meaning is not the end of the story mm. that there is also to be considered in exegesis, what the divine author is saying through the human author. And, um, I think it's beautiful the way he, the way he says, basically, look, um, the Holy spirit is, is saying it in one way through this human author and he's saying it a different way through that human author. And one of, and, and you should notice that, that it's so so the final the final point of the meaning is not the distinction in the in the, the rough style of Amos versus this, the high the high poetic style of Isaiah. That's not the final thing to note. That's a thing to notice along the way. But you but you have to look for what unites them. Mm. How do they both understand the covenant? Mm. And how do they both convey God's truth in a way that is unified despite their their differences of, of style on the human level? Because Calvin is going for that divine human author, he's going for coherence, and he's going for um, how how the Bible all fits together. And actually, all three of these quotes that you have done, you've read, they all do that. They all go for, they're all pushing towards seeing the Bible as a coherent message that makes sense as a whole and isn't self-contradictory. And uh, that's probably... Um, something that is absolutely fundamental to, to biblical, to good biblical exegesis, to see it as non-contradictory and to see it as non-contradictory precisely because the real meaning of the text is what the divine author intends to say through it. That's great. Well, Dr. Carter, um, I think we'll stop there. And and yeah, thank you so much for the conversation. And thank you for um, just even humoring me a little bit on the uh, on, on the on the fact or fiction portion. And so thank you for serving our audience here on just the history of interpretation of uh, even this discipline of how does this even work? What What is this? Uh, what are we calling biblical theology? Is it just sort of a, a placeholder, these sorts of things? And, and you've you've helped us big time by walking through these three figures and um, even taking some examples and, and ruminating on them a little bit. So thank you. And, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Nice to chat with you. This podcast is a product of Credo Magazine. For more resources like this, visit credomag.com. The theme song for the Biblical Theology Podcast is Space Cadet by Philanthropy and Sleepy Fish, provided courtesy of Chill Hop Music. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Sam Burek and produced by Ben Van Holstein.